Thanks everyone for joining. I'm Amartya Kun, founder and CEO of Mercury. Welcome to our event with Kanye Mkubela and Steve Jang. Sorry if I ruined your name, there, Kanye. Uh, Kanye and Steve are managing partners at Kindred Ventures, generalist early stage venture fund. We're going to talk about all sorts of things and really focus on kind of seed investing. Well, the only thing is, you you have no idea how badly you butchered my name, so it's important for us to start there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, you probably can't say my name either. So. You, wouldn't, you wouldn't be the first, and it's a strange note to start on. But I just, for whatever reason, I'm feeling I'm feeling spunky today. So my name is Makubela. I have a click in my name. So. Oh really, Makubela? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that good? <laughs> You know what? You'll get there. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I'd love to hear the kind of quick journey of how you how you kind of started Kindred and what what your what your feelings were in terms of like what was lacking in kind of the seed funding ecosystem. So I, I started out as a, in this space as an entrepreneur about fifteen years ago when I started um, uh, building products and starting companies. Uh, there was really not a lot of angel investors and there weren't even seed funds. It was just, you know, there were venture capital funds and there really wasn't this idea of a seed anyway. It was like, you just started with like angel money maybe or a series A and it was pretty simple. But what you, what you didn't have back then was a wide range of choice when it came to investors. And back then, you know, the, idea of bringing on an investor was like, oh, if you were really lucky, you worked hard and all these good things, um, you could work with one of maybe like, you know, 15 or 20 venture capital funds in Silicon Valley. And most of those funds actually had a rule of not even investing in any company outside of the Bay Area. I believe it or not, if you were from LA or New York, you immediately got dinged for not being in Silicon Valley or the Bay Area. And um, and that's a pretty crazy thought to think about today, right? With the number of funds and investors and where startups are happening all over the world. So that's kind of where I started on the entrepreneurship journey. And so later on, when I got lucky with a, a few startups as an investor, advisor, founder, and I had some extra capital, I did the really stupid thing and just started reinvesting everything I had in cash into other people's startups, which I don't recommend. But um, I did it anyway because I just wanted to be in the mix and I just wanted to be helpful and I wanted to learn. And this is probably not a great thing to say to prospective founders, but I also had a little bit of FOMO. I, I just wanted to you know, learn about new things outside of my startup too, because I was so heads down on what I was working on with my team. I thought of angel investing and advising as this way to learn more about what was happening outside of my little uh, part of the universe. As I was angel investing, I, I realized that it could be something. And, you know, I had sort of got in my head that building an institution or an entity would be a cool way to maybe, you know, have a, um, a bet on the future if this all, all this angel investing worked out. The good thing and sort of the somewhat stressful thing is that the very first uh, angel investment and um, advisor role was Uber. And so, I learned a lot from that experience and I just wanted to start, you know, doubling down with everything that was happening there. And so I created Kindred Ventures just as an angel investment fund uh, for me personally. I think they call it like a solo capitalist fund today. Um, but yeah, so just created it uh, with my capital and very small checks and it just set, sat separately uh, from my own startup. Um, Kanye and I met 
uh, after I uh, bet, um, made about, I think about 30 or 40 bets and was helping startups, you know, with their zero to one stage. And Connie was at Collaborative Fund, a well-known seed fund based in New York and San Francisco. And he and I were um, investors on a, on, a, on a bunch of companies together, which I'll let him kind of walk through because they were really like predecessors for how we think about the startups we invest in today. And Kanye basically schooled me on, you know, all the stuff that I didn't know about venture capital, uh, portfolio construction and, um, you know, writing lead checks versus not lead checks. And we would just shoot the shit and we would talk about this um, at a cafe kind of endlessly going way over time. And, um, and uh, we got in our heads to um, uh, create a fund that would be founders backing founders that would spend real time and real energy on the stuff that matters like product and hiring and uh, go to market and things like that. Um, nothing fancy and, and lofty, really just rolling up our sleeves and, and putting in the work with our founders in a real partnership. Um, and that's the idea of uh, Kindred Ventures today. I mean, we co-founded a venture capital fund with LPs. We write lead investment checks. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't, uh, um, invest in a ton of companies. We're high concentration, as they say, in the industry, because we want to partner with a small handful of, of, part, of founders. And that's really our motto. And we also start companies together. So if we can't find a company solving a problem uh, that we think is super important in the world, then uh, we'll actually incubate our own ideas and try to find uh, talented founders to um, join us and, and take it over and, and, uh, and we spin it out. So we, we have a little bit of fun still as founders, um, you know, Connie and I still like to scratch that itch a bit, but we only do it when we, when there's a real true need there. How many companies do you invest in per year and how many do you incubate or how many have you incubated? Well, we invest in it's per fund, I think is a more useful um, designation because per year and frankly, any unit of time is somewhat intentionally left flexible, but we'll invest in 20 to 25 companies per fund. And our first fund uh, took about two and a quarter years. And so that ends up resulting in approximately uh, one company per month, but that's not by design. And so we may go significantly slower than that. We may go faster than that uh, in any given time period. But the key for us is investing in a number of companies where we can be super concentrated uh, and really support them. So most seed funds, even those that lead, are more likely to do 30 and in some cases 40 uh, companies per fund. And so by keeping it really tight, it gives us a chance to actually just be really available and build deep relationships with each team that we partner with. Uh, and then in terms of how many we form, uh, again, we, we try not to be too prescriptive about it up front. Uh, we've formed three so far. We've got another one and a half in the hopper right now. So it'll probably end up being somewhere between three and five per fund. And how much do you invest in each company? Oh, we invest as a lead. So one of the things about, you know, one of the things about seed as I'm sure you know, but most importantly for the listeners, you know, we, we think of seed uh, broadly speaking as pre-product market fit. Uh, and that used to correlate perfectly to some funding mechanism, but as startup go-to-markets have become more uh, heterogeneous and have become more diverse and have become more, uh, you know, innovating in different industries, sometimes you'll see a 500K round that is the, you know, only equity financing you need to get commercialization and get product market fit. Sometimes you'll see 
a $5 million round to do the same thing, depending on the industry. And so we try and say, we want to be the lead investor and we want to try and buy meaningful. So 10 to 20% ownership, but we can do that in a $5 million round in the same motion that we would do it with a 500 K round. And it's important for us to maintain that flexibility because the truth is companies are super flexible and super heterogeneous. They go to market in a million different ways at any given moment. Do you find it a little off-putting? Like you can, you can do 1 million uh, in a pre-product market fit company, or you'd have to do 2.5 million and someone doing like a huge seed round. And it's like at a similar stage, do you, do you sometimes get annoyed about doing those like expensive rounds? No, I mean, it, it's, it's the, the idea of like, there's like a set amount of capital um, for every company, even at the same stage. I think that's I, I think that's misleading. Um, I think it depends on it, it always depends upon budget. Like what what is the budget you need to actually build this company along this roadmap? And that can be very different, right? That can be very different for a SaaS company that's purely software, doesn't have any sales really in the beginning because it's a bottom up operation in terms of um, client uh, acquisition um, compared to um, you know, a, a digital media business, which might have a lot of infrastructure and operations on the back end. Um, and, com and compare that to like a hardware and software oriented hybrid business, which will have a totally different timeline and supply chain uh, speed. So I think um, the idea of fixing like a set amount to um, a stage in a startup is probably, you know, not the right way to go. Um, so I don't think it's off-putting. It's more that um, it's more off-putting if um, there's just no rhyme or reason for how much you're investing other than there's just a lot of demand. And we do have a rule, or not a rule, but it's almost like a law, which um, we've seen out there when startups raise way too much for what their actual budget and plan is. Um, we've seen this thing where uh, unintentionally, and oftentimes um, uh, this happens really subconsciously, um, you know, startup teams have a, a feeling of maybe early success because of the amount raised. And there's a, a certain sort of like slowness that comes into the organization. And so I think that, you know, really awesome founders and teams, you know, aren't subject to that, right? But a lot of them can be um, if they just raise way too much than they need. And again, what, what is needed is very different based upon what type of startup it is. Yeah. I think the bigger issue is also when they spend all the money that they raised and then they haven't made as much progress as they needed to to justify uh, all that money spent. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how many consumer social software startups um, there are that talented teams raised a good amount and really were searching and journeying for to find product market fit. And that's a very different challenge in social consumer than it is, let's say in SaaS, right? Enterprise SaaS. And so, you know, right away, you kind of know, and you, you know, first off, you have to get the first, you know, 10 to 100 customers. And then you can see the metrics, the unit economics of each and their ability to pay and kind of um, how you sit in the market. Social consumer, I mean, it can be a year to three year journey until you, um, really find product market fit. And usually in that space, you're looking at, you know, can you get to a hundred thousand? Can you get to a million users uh, on an active basis? So those timelines are all over the map. So I, I think, you know, 
there's a different expectation as well. You see a lot of immediate successes in areas like the former, and you see a long, a long list of companies that um, are searching for a while in, in the latter. So it all depends on the, the again the type of company, and that's the thing that Kanye and I try to approach. You know, as generalist investors, we have to think about different uh, uh, budget sizes and round sizes. We have to think about uh, even different sort of time lengths in terms of duration of the investment. Um, sometimes we invest in companies that um, have a 10 to 15 year story arc if successful. And that's if they're wildly successful. It may take up to 15 years for that, that company to play out. Um, and we know that we walk into that eyes wide open. Uh, there are some companies that you'll know within a year whether or not um, uh, they have product market fit and they're going to be uh, generally you know high probability of success and so we just have to you know look at each founder team and look at each company as its own unique thing when you say you're generalist like how generalist are you is there like spaces you won't invest in or is it anything as long as it's gonna be huge generalist really uh, <laughs> uh one of the things i always like to notice that you know venture capitalists get a lot of credit for being a future soothsayers and they sit on panels and talk about this but the truth is the entrepreneurs are and what we are and what our job is is to is to be in the present and to truly be in the present and so sometimes we'll meet a company who's building a new synthetic food go-to-market that's mostly in a wet lab but they've got an amazing piece of technology leverage that's going to allow them to scale Sometimes we'll meet somebody who's building a new audio only social network and they obviously have technology that will allow them to scale. And so we try our hardest to have a beginner's mind and an open mind and a learning mindset when we approach any given company. And we do actually want to be open minded. There's certain things that we personally like more than others. There's certain areas that we get more excited about than others. There's also certain experiences that lead us to have a more strongly prepared mind in a given industry versus others, but we are always actually actively trying to break that. And it's really important to us to be able to break that because we don't know what the future holds and we wanna be open-minded to the future. And we wanna always be challenging ourselves to be even more beginner uh, about the future than we were before. So it's important for us to be generalist that way. The last thing I'll say about it though, is that you know one of the things that's somewhat misunderstood about the technology business is you know, markets are super important, but truly, truly spectacular, amazing teams are so darn important and truly spectacular, amazing teams uh, don't just don't follow trends. They set trends. And since they set trends, I think it's really important to to look for the trend setter, not the trend follower. And so don't just follow the flock, but look for the eagle. You know, that's how we think about it. I find it's tricky when I'm looking at, let's say, a biotech company and they're like, hey, we're using this T-cell treatment to solve cancer. And I'm like, I don't know if this problem exists. I have no way of evaluating the founder. I mean, do you find that outside like certain things, you just have this difficulty with like really making an informed decision as an investor? Yeah, I mean, and I would, you know, Kanye should... Um chime in on this because we we deal with this a lot um as a generalist seed fund so there's often areas that um, are either frontier um because they're frontier technologies because they're actually very new um 
combinations of, of technologies, or there's actually something um, scientific um, in, in nature that's happening um, and that's uh, outside of our wheelhouse. So what we'll have to do there is really think about the problem at the first principle level and say, you know, is this a problem that um, we're, we agree with and we're passionate about? And are we willing to do the work to race to understand the nature of it? And uh, oftentimes this process, you know, we call it going down the rabbit hole with founders, um, you know, where they're the expert by far and we are, um, they're the subject matter expert by far and we are following them uh, along their passion. Uh, and to see if this is a, a company that we can partner with. And so oftentimes we come out of that um, failing to get there, right? Um, but every time we do that, it really expands our, our knowledge base. And, and perhaps the next company that comes along will be bit better prepared um, to quickly assess and get to know them and, and make a uh, maybe a, a more informed decision. So it's always like on a continuum of process. That being said, uh, we've done, you know, we've invested in companies um, uh, in depth and with breath in crypto to uh, synthetic biology to um, uh, uh, new computing uh, paradigms um, and uh, uh, climate tech. So we are constantly pushing um, ourselves to do that. And one of the things that we do internally, Kanye and I, we, we constantly are talking about a lot of these issues, a lot of the problems out there, meeting with folks. So a lot of time spent in seed investing is not just talking with founders on pitches and, and working with the portfolio companies, but it's also just doing our own research and, and talking to folks in the industry and, and doing a lot of primary and secondary research into what's happening. So we've spent a lot of time in food science, climate tech, and crypto, just reading. We read a ton all day and all night um, diving into white papers and, and looking up uh, folks that we can uh, talk to um, in academia or in other large companies just to get a sense for what's happening. Um, and so that's a, that's a fun part of the job, but it's also obviously the, the time-consuming one. And we're always trying to learn from new founders. So we're very open to meeting folks that might have something uh, very specific and very, um, might, you know, operate in a small niche world and, may not be getting uh, much attention from other VCs. We actually embrace that and would love to meet them. Actually, Steve, you mentioned something that reminded me of an important point that I want to note too, which is like at the beginning of a venture career, most people who are new to it try and fill their day with meetings. They take as many meetings as possible. And the funny thing is, as you get more experienced in the business, uh, taking less meetings is actually more common. And at first I used to think, oh, it's just because your network becomes stronger. And so you can say yes or no more easily. But I've come to realize that it's actually a little bit of a nuance, which is that you got to spend some time thinking too. <laughs> and you got to spend some time uh, learning and reflecting and just doing the quiet, normal things that are really important for having a prepared mind. And I don't know, you know, if Mind you experience this in, in your line of work, but when you're taking six, seven, eight meetings a day, you have to, it's really hard to think. And it's really hard to think clearly because you're just reacting. And so when Steve talks about how sometimes we'll spend a day reading, like it's actually really important for us to create the space to do that. Cause when we then go take a meeting, it's like, oh, interesting. I was just reading about an edge case around how protein isolates when you're using pea protein make better mouthfeel when you're 
dealing with, you know, fake meat. Like that's, that's how you have a prepared mind around something is you just give yourself some quiet space. And so I think there's power in the quiet space too. Yeah, I would love less meetings. Unfortunately, as a <laughs> growing company CEO, I'm like <laughs> averaging like freaking 12 a day or something. Uh, when you, what is your favorite source for like going deep on things? Is it like, are you reading papers or are you, you know, is it just depends on what, like whatever interests you, like, do you have like a format for this? Well, what I usually do, and I don't, you know, Steve and I talk about how to do this in, in, Many ways, I'd love to hear his answer. But one of the things I usually do is, if I hear a really interesting pitch, uh, one of the things I try to do in the deck or in the conversation is trying to understand where their source material is. And so, if they're referencing uh, a market size or if they're referencing an emerging technology, I'm like, well, where have you been reading about this? Where have you been learning about this with the founder? So I actually find that pitches are a great source of insight, not just about a given company or a given market, but even about adjacencies. And so. You know, as as an example of that, I was really interested in in how merchants deal with uh, payment data. And one of our, you know, one of our stealth portfolio companies was pitching some interesting concept there. And I was like, well, can you show me some source material? And that sent me down this whole rabbit hole around how payment data gets shared and, and protected and stuff like that, which became a new point of interest. Right. And so that's how I personally do it primarily. Yeah, I think I think a lot of this is um, you know can be prescribed and sort of planned, but a lot of this is also just serendipity. Um, one of the one of the fun things about investing at Seed is that, uh, in generalist uh, as a generalist investor, is that you come in contact with a lot of folks. Um, there's there have been people because of references on founders that have become subject matter experts that we have talk to you about different topics, right? For instance, um, uh, uh, we're, you know, we were looking at a, um, uh, at a battery technology company and um, got to know a little bit of uh, folks from the solar and wind energy sector. And they've been um, very helpful in understanding a robotics company uh, that is in the related tangential sector. So a lot of this stuff is serendipity and, and making sort of horizontal connections. The, um, the other thing too, is just going into a lot of software companies. You can just go into their documentation. You can go into their GitHub, you can go into their API documentation and you can get a, get a pretty strong sense of, of the quality and the speed of the organization, just from the GitHub repos, just from the API documentation, you can kind of see, um, how they're thinking about their uh, product. Um, in in other cases, you can see a lot in just a product demo. So we actually don't love to spend time on presentations and decks. Um, you, you know, you should have one if you're running a, a financing process. Uh, but I don't think it needs to be, you know, a huge thing, and you don't have to spend too much time on polish at Seed. I think it's really about having either a product demo or um, some type of like product overview document if you haven't shipped the product yet. Uh, and then being able to just talk about it and have a, have a, a real conversation. And a lot of what we do is really trying to get to real honest, open, natural conversations with founders and moving quickly off of the, you know, the pitch deck presentation stuff. Cause that stuff is like, you know, most people smart enough to uh, idealize a product to solve a problem can put together a reasonable presentation. And so that to me is table stakes and just commodity. 
I think uh, getting down to a back and forth Q&A type of chat around their product vision and what the market wants and how they think about building the team out to, to make this happen, that's, that's just much more valuable to us. So given that you're very selective, uh, but very generalist, you must get a ton of kind of top of funnel. Uh, how do you sort through it? Like, do you rely on warm intros or is it, you know, do you have some process for that? Well, the number has, the number has been moving up uh, steadily actually for the last four or five years. But last time I checked, I think the number was something like 5,000 companies that are looking for initial financing uh, raising in, in, in the world uh, and we're global investors. And so that means that we could be meeting, gosh, what is it? 15 companies a day, including on the weekends and not meet them all, uh, which needless to say is not what we're gonna do. Uh, and so one of the things that's somewhat misunderstood about the venture business is, uh, you know, you are what you do all the, day, all the time and what we do all the time is say no. And finding more efficient and more productive and more, I think, like empathetic and constructive ways to say no is, is an art. And so when I say empathetic and constructive, uh, say no in a way that generates more interesting opportunity. How do you, when you find a company that isn't a fit, uh, quickly turn it into learning more about how to find another company that is a fit? How are you constructive as in how are you making sure you're seeing around corners and expanding your network beyond your natural reach? Because... Uh, no single investor on earth uh, has a first degree or even a second degree relationship with every future billion dollar company. And so you always need to figure out how to expand your network more constructively. So do we respond to cold inbound? 100% uh, via Twitter, via LinkedIn, via Gmail. Is it really hard to respond to even a fraction of them uh, and stay sane? Yes. And so we don't respond to most of them, but we totally do. Uh, we also will totally reach out proactively to people on Twitter. Uh, there is, you know, there are at least two companies I can think of in our portfolio where either Steve or I DM'd the founder on a tip and was like, hey, can we just, can we chat? And there are people actually in the audience who I've DM'd saying, hey, I see you follow this person. Can you, can you give us a hookup? Just because we hear something interesting out in the world. And so it, the serendipity there actually is important uh, because we want to allow for, inspiration to come from the strange corners that it comes from. But to your point about how do you keep the top of the funnel manageable and how do you not live in email all the time, you do have to say no both a ton and quickly. And so getting a quick gut instinct around whether or not you're, you're going to want to spend time with a person or even an idea based on a blurb or a pitch deck is one of the most important parts of our job. And it's a hard thing to do. Yeah, what do you warm intro thing is you know, look, the, the cold, the cold email DM, you know, there's basically, you know, I think the last I counted, there's like seven different ways um, uh, to, to message me cold. Right. And it's really hard. I feel, it feels like whack-a-mole um, trying, just trying to um, keep up with that. And so it's probably, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I should, I should probably just like close down DMs on, on some of the platforms so that it can channel into something a little bit more manageable. But the um, the warm intro stuff is just it just helps it only helps right and we still we still try to read every um, uh, cold DM and email but you know putting in the work to just find someone and we're you know Connie and I are pretty you know, networked and connected globally even so 
um, that shouldn't be too hard. Um, but even if it is, um, you know, the warm intro just helps. The, the, the hot intro is where one of our founders um, says they've met someone or they know someone building uh, a really interesting product or technology. And we absolutely have to meet them. That obviously makes a huge difference. But between warm and cold, we're still looking at the merit of the founder um, and uh, the importance of the problem that they're solving and their unique approach to the product. So um, just wanted to you know, make sure that um, it's warm intro is not required, but it is it is helpful to, to bring signal to a lot of the noise that's out there. Um, the other thing too that, um, Anya and I kind of think about when we think about uh, the the idea of being constructive. You know, it's quite challenging uh, for any founder. I've been there where you hear a ton of no's because um, you you know obviously you want to hear yes, and it's personal, right? When you're starting a company, business is personal. It feels personal, at least, right? Uh, in, in my experience, I think the I think the learning process that you go through in talking to founders. Um, is similar on the other side when founders are talking to investors. So we always want to uh, provide something concrete and um, constructive to um, them learning on their journey. Because we circle back often. There are oftentimes uh, we have passed on a company um, and the founder we thought was just really talented. They've come back later, either in a next startup or later on after making some progress. And then we have invested in them. And so um, I think all of these things are, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a small world and a, and a long life uh, in this career. And so um, we want to maintain those relationships and we hope that we have that mutuality. Uh, in about 10 minutes, we'll take some audience questions as well. So uh, yeah, put your hands up on the app if you are interested in asking any questions and I'll try to include as many people as possible. Uh, so when you're looking at this cold email, like what are, uh, Kanye, you said you have to make a decision quickly. Uh, what are the things that like most stand out? Is there a particular thing that you're looking for? Like types of things that you think like an entrepreneur can do to be very concise and get through the noise? Uh, it, it, it kind of depends, but a couple of things are, uh, why do you have uh, domain insight? And can you articulate that quickly and efficiently? That's one that I look at as a signal. Uh, another, and so there's tons of ways you can express that, but one of the ways you can express it is, uh, did you know that X is true instead of Y? And so uh, did you know that uh, the vast majority of people who are buying a home or buying one with help from uh, a family member or something like that? Like I'm, I'm making that up, but the point there being, oh, that's interesting cool, I now want to learn more about whatever's in your brain because you clearly are bringing some insight to the table. Uh, that's one thing that can help you jump off the page. The second is recognizing that, uh, you know, we're both trying to get signal through noise and so being really efficient in your comms. And so if you can synthesize what you're doing down to four or five sentences and then can, can include a couple of highlights that are all notable and can express a sense of inevitability, that's really powerful. And so we are the only team that can X. We are the first team that has Y. Uh, we have a team that can deliver these types of things tactically to getting our business to market. I wanna know why I should give a hoot because there's a lot of things where I shouldn't give a hoot uh, you know, with all due respect. And so that's one of the things that I try and look at too is being able to really efficiently condense and display your value. And then the last one is uh, 
you know, it's honestly just serendipity and luck. And so sometimes I'm, you know, I'm sitting at home and I'm catching up on messages and, and I'll be reading through those messages and I'll say, oh, that's interesting. I'm curious about that. Uh, and other times I'm overwhelmed, like Steve mentions, and, and I'm just trying to fight back my email. And so some of it's serendipity, but I do look for those insight and efficiency of demonstrating why you're something interesting. What's your process from like that first email to to committing to invest in something? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a so Kanye and I. The way we look at seed, I think most seed uh, funds that are uh, leading in today's um, industry are will probably agree with this. Seed is um, feels and looks and smells very different from uh, from the rest of venture today. Um, if you're investing pre-product, not just pre-product market fit, but pre-product, um, uh, you really have to, um, you really have a different type of process. You know, so so let me give you the juxtaposition. The uh, on Series A or later, you have a team, you have a product and market, you have metrics, um, you probably have revenue at some significant level. You can check growth rates, unit economics, all these good things, right? Very sort of classic um, uh, business analysis that you can do from an investment perspective. Uh, and this is true usually at Series A and beyond. The At seed and pre-product, really what you're trying to assess is, you know, what is the problem at hand and how important is it? And importance can mean size, it can mean uh, growth rate, it can mean, you know, even like a personal passion, right? Like uh, you'll, you'll find so often that even the most experienced and like logically cold, logical investors still have air, theme areas that they're passionate about. And, you know, there's a lot of investor, uh, um, uh, uh market fit there. Um, but at C at this early stage, what you're really evaluating is the, the founding team and how they think about this important problem. The product itself is probably going to change. Um, we've backed a lot of companies where they've done uh, a hard pivot. We've also backed a lot of companies where they've done uh, a vector shift on their on their original product vision. These things happen a lot. So you can't really make the decision just on, on product because there really isn't a product for a lot of these companies at this stage. So our process, uh, therefore, is different. Um, we spend a lot of time, again, in this product discussion roadmap Q&A. Um, this is really important to us. We take copious notes on this and we're actually live. We, we live uh, um, write um, these notes in a collaborative tool we have on the back end. And so um, like if I'm doing that, Kanye can read it immediately uh, in near real time and vice versa. Uh, this is really important because we want to understand how founders think. And so that just is a different process because we're not just doing sort of like your one partner meeting and then the full partnership meeting and then due diligence questions and then and then term sheet. It can be very different, right? Um, depending upon the type of technology and company. But what we what we strive to do is have several conversations um, with Connie and I, with the founders, and really talk about that. Because that, you know, in those conversations, we kind of know at the output of that um, whether we want to invest and the numbers they're rarely numbers at seed and at the stage at which we're investing. And um, so we're really not going through a, a very typical diligence process. If there are numbers, we do, but usually there aren't. And so what we really want to have is sort of a vision and product Q&A. 
Have things changed in the last kind of three to six months? I mean, I know the public market's crazy. Growth stage investing is crazy. Have you seen and had that oh, yeah. effect on seed? Yeah, and oh, Connie, oh, you should yeah. unmute and join, the, join this one. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so two things. One is, and I'll kick this off and then Connie, uh, 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 you know, riff, riff, riff onto this. But um, so one venture capital asset class is getting so much capital. I mean, from every direction, hedge funds, mutual funds, uh, family offices, pension funds, um, all of who were reticent to invest in venture capital 10 years ago are all like, you know, creating their own funds and raising money into those. And, you know, uh, like I think uh, Third Point actually has a, a venture fund now, um, which is uh, uh, kind of insane. So the this is the natural conclusion of uh, private equity is that everyone will be a, a venture capital fund and everyone will be a growth fund and maybe even become a, a private equity fund like a buyout fund the um the thing that we're seeing is that it's inflating um valuations which is a good thing for founders to a certain extent um you know we're seeing uh markups for markups are basically where uh, another uh, later stage fund will will invest in your uh, portfolio company um, which is great um and at a much higher valuation so we're seeing those happen in certain uh, theme areas um, things like crypto, uh, uh, areas like crypto, uh, I would say, uh, enterprise data, uh, uh, climate tech, um, uh, SaaS, you're seeing um, uh, lofty valuations, um, sort of, I mean, we can say it's a local maxima, but it feels like a, a, um, a maxima period right now. Um, and these are just hot theme areas and sectors for a lot of these investors, because what they're seeing is, they're seeing a lot of SPACs and IPOs and direct listings. So they see uh, a light at the end of the tunnel. They can actually draw a line to a full terminal, um, you know, public valuation. And so a lot of them are, uh, are basically uh, investing with the mindset of how do I discount um, this full um, potential market valuation? So as long as I can do that, then I actually care less about specific frameworks and bands for valuations. Um, at these earlier stages. So in the big picture of things, if you're looking uh, towards the public markets, maybe you don't care as much about, uh, you know, getting it down to, you know, a $50 million uh, uh, post money on a Series A, and you're quite willing to do $100 million post money on a Series A. And that's increasing the check size that's ultimately being written into that company. So you're seeing a lot of macro things that are just uh, rising, you know, raising the tide level on these valuations, especially by theme area um, and the theme areas I noted. Um, and Kanye uh, and I have talked about this uh, quite frequently, and especially with other co-investors, uh, where we're, we're looking at um, seed valuations and wondering, you know, how is this affecting that? And what we see is a lot of multi-stage funds jumping into seed. Uh, so these multi-stage lifecycle funds uh, uh, very rarely did seed even five years ago. Um, uh, but now they have either dedicated seed funds. And so the, all the lines that were there, I mean, we talked earlier in this chat about like what was going on back in 2005, like over 15 years ago in venture. And you look at, look at what's happening now. It is a huge shift, but it's also a huge sh shift in all these like defined silos and stages. 
they're kind of getting deconstructed and almost obliterated in certain sectors. You're seeing um, a lot of like rule, rule bending and breaking happening among um, uh, different investor classes um, inside of venture. Um, but, I, you know, let me hand the mic to, to Connie on this because, you know, we can go back and forth on this for hours, but we want to get to Q&A too. So, uh, Connie, um, uh, please add to that. Yeah. Well, I guess the only thing I'll add is, because Steve framed it actually really well, but an important thing to add is five years ago, um, a number of really, really, really smart investors from all sectors, from venture capital, hedge funds, et cetera, were like, this is the, this is the bottom of the eighth inning. We're about to be in the ninth inning. It's almost over. We're about to be at the top. Uh, like two, three years ago, they were like top. <laughs> uh, last year, they were like top. And there's a funny thing where it might actually be the case that uh, everybody is uh, going to need a perspective shift because maybe the information era has actually just begun and maybe the next 25 years are going to see a bull market expansion led by software that we haven't seen since the industrial revolution like that might actually That's be right. the case and so and and it's and it actually there's a lot of signals that at least softly imply that that could be the case and so one of the hard things to to do as an investor is to try and figure out how to stick to your knitting and hold on to your britches when you are of two minds one of which is valuation discipline pace discipline, price discipline, and the other of which is third industrial revolution, let's effing go, uh, because those might both be true. And so that's one of the things that makes not only our job, but the state of affairs that we're in the market today around very tricky to navigate. It's a really interesting point because there, there's, a, there's a fair amount of like success and confirmation bias happening with investors. Um, and that's why like with founders, it's the same thing. I mean, there's this, a cycle of development Right, like back when Zuck um, uh, refused um, acquisition offers, you know, I, I'd say greater than half the tech industry. Not, I'm not talking about Wall Street or um, outside of the tech industry. Half the tech industry thought he was stupid to not take these acquisition offers. And in hindsight, um, he looks really smart. And I would say that I would say that 99% plus of the tech industry now thinks that that was the smart move. So. I think there's a lot of folks that have been in the industry said that have said it can't get any more peak than this because I have never myself seen a peak higher than this, right? And that's just sort of like really ironic thinking from what are supposed to be investors in innovation cycles. If you yep. think about the S curves of technology, we don't we're not operating on the same S curves. So why would we think that the same local maxima would apply? They're new S curves that we're traveling on as an industry, right? Like we're right now, we're on one on decentralization, on fintech, digital healthcare, uh, uh, enterprise cloud and data. I mean, you just kind of look across the board: connected fitness, uh, crypto. There's so many S curves that we're traveling on as an industry. Where we used to travel on two or three at a time, maybe four. I, I feel like we're on 20 or 25 different. Uh, theme area S curves, and if you if you look at all of that energy, it's not zero sum, it's positive sum. Mm -hmm. There are more startup founders, more investors, more opportunities, more problems to solve that we can apply software and technology towards. So, um, you know, we have to, even Connie and I, we have to be careful not to be the old curmudgeon, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like 
oh, this is too, this is too crazy for us. And we have to just calm every, everything down so we feel comfortable. We have to be careful not to be the, the old people, uh, so to speak, in the, in the industry. We have to think, we have to, we have to break down our preconceived notion of what is, um, what, what is too much or what is, um, what is not right or what is the, the local maximum or, and, or, the, or the peak. And so, you know, there's always going to be these hype cycles around every technology, but what we try to do is really think on a first principle level, is there a new problem here that's, that's really important growing fast? And then maybe we have to adapt and change how we think about our, our investment size and our approach. All right. That's Honestly, a... I want to say one, I want to say one last thing. It's burning. It's burning on my heart, which is, uh, you know, there's this old trope that there's four quadrants, uh, you know, right and wrong, contrarian and, uh, and consensus. And the only one where you can make money is if you are uh, contrarian and right. But one of the weird things about startups and tech is only one of those boxes matters. If you're right, the way that right happens is so, 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 so right. And so you think about, uh, there are currently companies that are getting uh, 100x return to the people who came in at the $250 million valuation mark. Uh, like the size and the scale of technology transformation when it's happening globally and it's happening across sector and software is at the center of it can be so big that how right can you get continues to get bigger. And so one of the things that's a little bit scary when you reflect on that is uh, there's a possibility that just being right is actually the thing that matters the most right now. And again, I keep saying it's a possibility because the fund manager, the conservative part of me is like, well, gosh, you still have to manage for risk and downside and so forth. But the upside is just so big. So I just wanted to note that. One, one quick addition to that is I 100% agree being right offers great success and financial return for all involved, whether it's contrarian or not, but it is a lot more fun to be contrarian and right. Oh yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Just oh, personally, yeah. as a founder, as an investor, <laughs> as an employee, as a supporter. Because oh, then you can say F fun. you at the end. <laughs> well, I, 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 was talking, I, I was talking about this with uh, Fred Wilson the other day about sometimes when you invest in a sector or you start a company sector and you too, you too early, if you're too early, there's this weird feeling that happens when, um, when the sector or the, these types of technologies actually become successful and popular. Um, you have this like indie music hipster, like psychology that happens where you're like, where were you before <laughs> when oh, yeah. we were all starting this thing? And it's a little bit of like pride, a little bit of ego, a little bit of like um, yeah, defensiveness. And we were talking about it. And I, thought, I thought it was really funny because um, the, you know, look, we've invested like, like, let's, let's take NFTs. We invested in Rarebits, which was one of the first uh, NFT marketplaces back in uh, 2017, late 2017, um, early 2018. Um, and the company ultimately failed, right? Um, the founders were great. They were from uh, Zynga, had built uh, Farmville, um, super awesome team. They were just too early. So the market just didn't materialize in terms of demand. Now NFTs are uh, quite popular and we've invested in uh, two companies, Zora and Bitsky, in which I'm a co-founder. And both of them felt early even last year and the year before that when we invested in them. 
And now that the market has, um, you know, the killer app for NFTs has turned out to be art and collectibles, uh, they're, they're, they're racing to fill that. But, you know, sometimes when you're investing early, it's lonely. You're there. It's you're wandering through the desert, looking for that oasis, looking for that body of water. And um, that's, you know, that's something that we have to be um, careful about. It's like the other side of all of this raging success and valuations in the tech industry, all this fervor to deploy capital here is great. Um, but the other thing that we always try to keep in our minds is, um, you know, there are times when it's very lean and it's dry and, um, and investing early as a seed investor can be that. And so we always tell founders, you know, keep it, you know, obviously it's the, it's the very often phrase of, you know, keep it very lean, you know, focus on product, don't overhire until they hit product market fit or even revenue. Right. Um, but it's very true because the earlier you are, the more contrarian you are, the more likely it is, is you're going to be, you know, wandering through the desert for a while. And that's okay. If you're ready for that, if you're not ready for that, um, then you're going to be in trouble. All right. Let's get the audience members up. Firstly, we have Elma. Hey, Elma. What's hey your guys. question? Question hey. is if, if someone is sending you a pitch via email, you mentioned that the deck is probably not as important that you would prefer a demo. Um, can you provide any any uh, advice on like, should that be a short 30 second demo? Should it be on YouTube? What do you prefer instead of a, a boring old deck? Uh, well, I'll jump in and then Steve, thank you for the question, Elmer. So um, I guess Elmer, the, the point with the deck is not that uh, the, the deck is going to be the difference or not versus uh, for us taking a meeting it's that the deck is not necessarily going to be indicative of whether or not it's a right fit for us uh because uh, a deck is just you know table stakes initial shot across the bow i happen to actually really like decks because it gives me a chance to very quickly scan how you're structuring your story and how you're structuring uh the the basic narrative of why you're going to market but the deck isn't going to be what gets us in the partnership. The deck is just, uh, you know, maybe what gets you in the door. And then what gets us in the partnership is talking about products and talking about the plans and talking about the team and getting into the stuff that's a little bit harder to assess in 2D. So getting more of a 3D picture. Yeah, so what's your question? Hi, Matt, thanks. Um, so my question is actually, uh, I'm calling from uh, Kenya. Um, my question is um, around the funds focus on Africa. Uh, what what are your thoughts on that? Is that something that the fund is looking at? Is it something you've looked at before? One, to answer your question directly, we do look at startups in Africa. Uh, number two, we look at startups from any region uh, of the globe. Uh, historically, I think somewhere around, uh, I would say 10% of our companies are outside of the US. I think that'll grow over time. Uh, even within the US, we're, we're, you know, we're less than half from the Silicon Valley area. Uh, so everything is sort of distributing and spreading. One of the particular things that we love about uh, developing markets is that uh, it's not just that it's a, it's a new market opportunity for, for startups, but it's that it's going to have a variation of the technology development that's happened in, uh, in uh, developed markets. It's not just a copy and paste. We call it a copy, paste, and match style um, uh, difference between what's happening in Africa, 
Latam, Southeast Asia, India, South Asia, all of these areas are going to have different manifestations of very similar use cases, but different. Some countries have a credit system, they have credit cards. So the payment processing and the e-wallets the e are different. Some countries uh, are skipping laptops and desktops and going straight to smartphones. Some, some folks have, some regions have mobile money that's essentially managed and owned and operated by the, the mobile carriers. Some countries have, um, you know, very strong uh, regula regulated banking systems and require a new sort of, you know, chat app, super app based uh, system. So there's so many nuances. And I mean, if you get into ride sharing and mobility and delivery, um, that even uh, 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 magnifies uh, more. So uh, we're very excited about um, international reasons. We've invested in companies in Singapore, Africa, uh, Mexico, uh, China. Uh, we're looking at a com we're we're investing in a company in Japan right now. We've invested in companies in the Netherlands, UK. Um, so, uh, do you uh, do you find yourself doing like slightly later st stage companies when they're non-US? No, um, it's actually it's actually a wide range. So we've done some pre-product investments. We made pre-product investments in just a team, and we've also invested in companies that have two million in in uh, ARR. Right. So, um, you know, we're, and that's true of what we do in developed markets. So we don't look at that differently. What we do look at differently though, is we have to make sure that we understand their home market because they're going to launch in their home market. And so oftentimes we'll want to partner with a local fund, uh, that will be our partner in that market. If we don't understand that market nearly well enough to help them with the go-to-market process of their product. So, um, that is, a a, a different thing where. Whereas in, you know, in, uh, in the US and North America and uh, Europe, you know, I don't think that we need a, 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 a co-lead partner to invest in those companies. I know we kind of don't think of this as amazing anymore, but it's kind of cool that Asif and Tenyu could ask that question to us in San Francisco and it was like a smooth experience to answer it. Uh, all right, we've got someone else coming up, hopefully. Brian, what's your question? My question is, what are your thoughts on solo founders with large um, employee stock option pools? Um, I ask because I know Kindred backed Micah Otis Wealth a few years ago, and this is the approach he took when he started out. Um, I know there's a difference between, you know, being a solo founder as a, a first time founder and also, you know, as a repeat founder. But yeah, curious what your general thoughts are. Thanks, Brian. Uh, so general thoughts are what we're looking for in a founding team is, uh, can you have very high product velocity in answering some of the original hypotheses framed in your story? Now, if you as an individual can answer all those hypotheses perfectly well, and that answers the question about the founding team, uh, most people can't. And so a lot of those questions are go-to-market questions. And so you need to have somebody who is willing to sort of roll up their sleeves and go out into the customer landscape. Some of those questions are technical and product questions. And so somebody with a technical and product background is typically important. If you happen to be a multiple threat who can do that, awesome. And if you're not, then the question for us becomes, well, can you hire that person in quickly? Can you hire that person in uh, right away? Because one of the things that almost every venture capitalist is looking for is product velocity. And so are you going to learn way, way faster than anyone else in your market? Because that's one of the most important inputs on your ability to innovate. 
and you're going to be constrained in your ability to learn if you don't have the right core pieces in your team. Do you think it's a negative signal? Like I've heard some people say, hey, they couldn't even uh, convince, you know, one person to join them as a co-founder. Uh, I personally don't, Steve. Maybe you do. Uh, I'd be interested to hear your view. Uh, the reason I don't see it as a negative signal is there's so many reasons why, like a co-founder is a both an economical, very big decision, and then also, you know, emotionally and culturally a very big decision. And a lot of startups, in fact, I might even reckon the majority of them uh, have co-founding teams where at the end of the day, only one of those people uh, has the juice and the, and the rest of the co-founders are kind of, you know, the Robin to that co-founder is Batman. And so getting that set up out the gate is a non-trivial exercise. So it's not just, can you convince somebody to, to partner with you? And it's more, you know, some of these other things. Yeah. There, there, there used to be like this, like a playbook for how a startup should be um, staffed and what your founding team should look like. But I think a lot of that stuff has um, been disproven now. There's too many exceptions of uniquely composed teams. And, you know, there's solo founders, there's founding teams with like five people. You know, a lot of them have worked. I will say this, most co-founder issues come and if you look at, so let's just look at successful startups, like long-term successful, they went public or they shipped a, an amazing product and changed the lives of millions of people. If there was a lot of co-founders, that got that got trimmed down to just the core founders that were actually building the business long term. So that is one truth that we've seen in in our data. The other one is that um, solo founders can be quite fine on their own. Now it is kind of strange if if they were trying to find a co-founder because they didn't feel like they could do it themselves and they couldn't find one. Of course, that's not that's not a great look. But I th I do think that the idea that you know you you have to be a man or a certain upbringing or certain education or that you had to like have a technical background. I don't think those are necessary. I do think if you're building a software product, you should have someone on the founding team or in the, in the, in the, or even in the co-founders that has built a software product. So there's some, still some, some necessities of, of being able to build at velocity as Connie said, but um, a lot of the other rules that seem kind of like weird, like empirical playbook rules, a lot of those are getting disproven. So I think that's a good thing. I think entrepreneurship and technology is a much more democratic exercise than it was. And it still needs a lot of work, but it's much more democratic than it was like 15, 20 years ago, for sure. All right, let's take one last question. Uh, this is Oba Femi, hopefully he will pop up. Can you guys hear me? Yes. So yeah, Oba Femi, you what's your this. question? Yeah, my question is, uh... Like as a young person, I'm a first year undergrad, like what are some uh, steps you'd advise for me to take if I want to get into venture long term? I would follow your interests and go build stuff first and foremost uh, and build stuff with friends and get used to building stuff, get into the habit of building stuff. Because ultimately venture is a service business for the builders. And so you'll be a much better uh, service participant to the builders if you build yourself. Uh, and that's increasingly becoming the case. People who have tinkered with products, who've launched products, who've tried to scale products, who've succeeded at it, have so much different of an empathy picture that they can bring to bear as VCs. And so if you wanna be a VC, the best thing I think to do is to not be one. 
Awesome. Uh, maybe a good point to end. That was a very smooth audience participation. <laughs> for so yes, I'm, I'm impressed. Thanks for participating, Kanye and Steve. Uh, you were super insightful. Uh, and thanks, thanks for everyone uh, listening. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you all. Bye. Bye. Awesome. Cool. Talk soon, everyone. Bye.